Hello and welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo and I'm here today uh, bringing you an interview with an author who I'm so fucking excited to talk to. We've been planning this a long time. Um, I'm here with Hannah Capen. Say hi, Hannah. Hello, everyone. This is Hannah. So Hannah is the author of the novels The Dead Queen's Club, which is a YA retelling of Henry VIII and his wives, uh, which is just as amazing as it sounds. And Foul is Fair, which comes out this month, um, which is a YA retelling of Macbeth with a vengeful teenage lady. Macbeth is the main character, also just as amazing as it sounds. And we have screamed about her books several times on the show before, so very happy to finally get to talk to her in person. So Hannah, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Foul is Fair and what inspired you to write it besides just that men are trash, which we'll also discuss <laughs> at length. Well, Foul is Fair, um, as as you just mentioned, it is, a, I would say, more of a reimagining probably than a retelling of yeah. um, the Scottish play. And it is it's something for a really long time I've wanted to do um, a retelling of the story um, ever since I very first read it I was like I just I I love Lady Macbeth so much like she is incredible and just I've wanted to give her her own story because I feel like just it's there she's such a strong and powerful character and I'm so grateful to Shakespeare for creating her but I'm also really angry with him for being like oh well once she's served her purpose in the plot of this story by making us feel bad for poor Macbeth, then we're just gonna get rid of her summarily in a way that makes no sense with her character, whatever. So I wanted to give her, you know, the ending that she deserved and whatever. So for a long time, I've wanted to do a reimagining of Macbeth, but I wasn't really sure like where that would necessarily go. Um, the the sort of, the, the thing that to me makes it a reimagining rather than a retelling is that there's this entire new, plot that doesn't exist within the play, the sort of 21st century aspect of it, because this is like really at its heart. It's a story of revenge after sexual assault. And I also had wanted to write that story for a long time. I really wanted to write a book where it sort of subverted the expected narrative, particularly in young adult fiction of a sexual assault survivor and um, sort of centered her in a position of power throughout the narrative that she was powerful before and after. She wasn't like made powerful because she survived, mm -hmm. but also she didn't become less powerful by experiencing that. Um, and so I really wanted to just have a story where um, the reader was recognizing that sexual assault survivors are powerful and they are not in any way made weak by that. And so somehow in my head, I was just like, I really love the idea of combining these two things and taking like a character that literally no one could say is not like the epitome of powerful and having her be a woman who has had this experience and is in no way reduced by it. Yes, I love that. And this is one of my favorite books that I've read, maybe oh, ever, definitely you. in the last year. It's so fucking good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I mean, the language in it is really incredible because it has this sort of poetry and rhythm to the language that's very Shakespearean, but it still feels totally modern. Mm -hmm. um, how did you approach that? I mean, just or is that just sort of how, because it's very different in tone from Dead Queens Club, like completely different in tone, but they're both brilliant. Well, first of all, thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Um, but yes, I very much, the, the tone is completely different. And I've been, I got a ton of, you know, people after, after Dead Queens came out being like, oh, I can't wait. Cause you know, I had already had Fallow's Fair announced. And I think particularly because they both happen to be 
reimaginings or retellings, which like also like sidebar is, you know, I don't only write that. It just was sort of a coincidence. Like I'd finished manuscripts before that were not retellings. The what hopefully is going to be book three is not like it just sort of happened that there were two back to back that happened to be the ones that I mean, you know, because you're a writer, like the books that you write are not always the books that get picked up and yeah. not always in that same order, whatever. So it kind of just happened. But I think because of the fact, I mean, your debut sort of sets the tone um, literally and metaphorically. And because of them both being YA retellings that are sort of loosely billed as thrillers, like, um, people were like, oh, I can't wait. Like, this is going to be so much fun. And, and <laughs> like lately, and I mean, it is fun. I it think is it's a fun. lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but it's a very different type of, for, for those who have not read The Dead Queen's Club, um, we pitched it as Mean Girls Meets the Tudors. So mm -hmm. it's very dramatic, very like, like, there's a lot of sarcasm. It's fast paced and quippy. And, you know, I've had some people sort of describe the tone as a little bit Gilmore Girls-ish. There's a lot of like, quick back and forth banter. And I mean, it does have the sort of mean girls tone as like, you know, slightly campy high school drama, like whatever. And you know, the tutors, as we all know, is very soap opera ish. So it's it's very like, it's got some serious themes. And actually, I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But there's a whole lot of thematic overlap there actually between the two. But like, but the tone is much lighter. So I think people sort of going into Fowl's Fair, had they read Dead Queens would sort of be expecting it to be, you know, like, kind of a, you know, like fun, like girls are going to take down the boys, blah, 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 blah. And in fact, like lately I've been seeing it included on a number of the like, you know, upcoming books that we're looking forward to, like people saying like, oh, this is like Mean Girls meets Macbeth. And I'm like, it really, <laughs> really is not like, and it kind of concerns me, like partly because I feel like, you know, it's, it's going to find the wrong audience, but also just because I mean, you know, I, I feel like people should be somewhat prepared for what they're going into. And Fallow's Fair is like extremely intense, um, yes. a lot, a lot darker. Anyway, I've completely like gone far off to off of the original question, which was how did you approach the tone? Um, but basically with both of these books, um, I really just, for me, the, the sort of seed of a story tends to be um, a narrative voice. And so for both of these books, like, from the very beginning, even before I really knew how I was going to nail down aspects of the plot, um, before I knew everything about setting and how I was going to map the, you know, original source material onto the reimagining, um, I had a distinctive voice that I wanted to use for the characters. So for Fallow's Fair, I knew it was going to be really dark and aggressive, and I really wanted to dig into the, you know, poetic aspects of, you know, Macbeth as being, you know, a play obviously told in verse. And I wanted to, to sort of capture that while it was still, you know, going to be prose. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you absolutely did that. And it is, it's really, really dark and it's really, really intense, but it is fun. I mean, I guess it depends what you find fun. I find watching men who deserve to die dying horribly <laughs> very fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'm reminded of uh, that quote. I, I don't know if you're as much of a Tarantino stan as I am. I know he's a very polarizing figure. But that interview from like way back in the day, where that like pearl clutching interviewer is like trying to tell him he's responsible for like children being violent. And you know, he's like, no, people can tell the difference. And then she's like, but why do you have so much violence in all of your films? And he just goes, because it's so much fun, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that is exactly how I feel. 
So shout out to Quentin. I love you. I'll send you pictures of my feet if you want. And please do keep this in the actual podcast. I promise I will. I don't know that he listens, but you never know. He does now. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, he's, I like, I have a complex relationship with him because, like, he's obviously kind of creepy, but I do love some of his movies. Like, my favorite of his is Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Oh, my God. I, I just rewatched that. that, like, last week. Yeah. So long, but so good. Yeah. So good. And Melanie Laurent's character. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Torch those Nazis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I also, like, completely love Diane Kruger in it. And, like, oh, yeah. I love Diane Kruger in everything because I really just love Diane Kruger. Um, but just there's just so much to love about that film. And I, I agree with you. Like, I, I also have a very complex relationship with him. Like, but but I really just you know, separating the creator from the art. Like I just freaking adore like his work and, you know, yeah. I always think of that Tina Fey quote where she said he was the star of her sexual nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's fair. (laughs) It is fair. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I was reading on your website, the content advisory for the book, which I think it's really great that you have created that. And it's going to be in the actual finished copies as well, right? Yes, it is. Um, And one of the things that you note there is that Foul is Fair presents and narratively condones revenge and vigilante justice. (laughs) Let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like comes after all of these other things, then it's like it condones it. And like, you know, there was like an earlier version where it said that somehow the way that I had phrased it suggested that it condoned murder. (laughs) And so I mean, you know, sometimes some people need to be murdered. I'm always saying that. (laughs) Yeah. Murder condoned. Anyway. Yes. I mean, very much like this, this is another aspect of of Fallis Fair. I think, you know, Fallis Fair, as, as you, you know, may agree having read it, it's, it's kind of polarizing. It's certainly, you know, it takes a stance that not everyone will agree with and it goes really hard in that direction, doesn't back down. And as you know, literally does not apologize all the way through mm-hmm. the very end. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't write this as like a book that is intended to be a how to guide, but at the same time, like, you know, given that, that this is supposed to be telling a story for a larger purpose within a, certain, you know, cultural context of everything that's going on right now in our world and historically, you know, like it's, it's timely, but it's also timeless kind of, Mm -hmm. but in, in that way, I just, for the purpose of this story, like, yeah, I, I feel like this is a book about, you know, sexual assault survivors, women, survivors of abuse, whoever like feels that it applies to them. Like, taking back the power that has been taken from them and seeking revenge or justice, whichever you'd like to call it. Basically, you know, living within a system where they feel that they will not receive justice and so taking it for themselves by any means necessary. Um, and that's really the heart of Fallow's Fair is, you know, Jade, our, you know, teenage lady Macbeth protagonist, like, does not believe that she is going to get justice um, for her assault. And so she decides she's going to get it for herself. And, you know, she does not regret this. And, you know, I don't think she should. And a, a really, you know, I just, yeah, you know, I've one of the, for me, like the litmus, litmus tests for this, this book, when I was talking to editors and things like that, you know, was how they would respond to the characters of her parents who, this isn't a spoiler for the non-readers, but, 
um, her parents are basically like, they're pretty much aware of what she's doing and basically mm-hmm. are like, okay, like go for it. Like, <laughs> let us know how we can support you. I mean, they're, they're not quite like handing her a murder weapon, but you know, they're on board. And I had some early readers in, you know, workshops and whatever else be like, I don't know, like this doesn't feel so believable. Like why on earth would her parents support her? Like blah, 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 blah. Um, and I was like, I don't know. I mean, if you don't support her, I'm not sure I want you in my life. But um, when I had my very first conversation with um, my now U.S. editor, Sarah Goodman at Wednesday Books, um, one of the very first things she mentioned was she was like, I just love her parents so much. I love that they are completely on board with this and that they support her. Like, I just think that's fantastic. And I wish we saw more of that in YA. And I was like, all right, this is this is the right fit for me in an editor and an imprint. So. Yeah, I love that because they're not the typical kind of absent or oblivious YA mm-hmm. parents. Like they know what's up. Yeah. <laughs> they know who their daughter is and they support her. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I think there's so many books coming out in the last year and like going forward that are these kind of revenge thrillers. Like my next mm-hmm. book is about a woman yes. who kills rapists for fun. And uh, I, it just makes sense because we're seeing this play out over and over and over again where like people are finally talking more about sexual assault and at least like trying to bring these perpetrators to justice but it just doesn't happen I mean you see it over and over they either get like a slap on the wrist or they kind of go away for a while and then they come back like Louis CK like will not fucking Mm -hmm. go away he's like a cockroach (laughs) and so when we're seeing like that the legal system's failing us there's not really any social consequences for these men it's like what are we supposed to do like maybe we should just kill them right I don't know (laughs) I don't know if you saw I got I'm not I'm not even sure if it's like out yet but I got my um school library journal review wait no book list book list review recently and there was a line in there where they're like I mean I'm I'm slightly decontextualizing it for maximum you know effect points but it says something along the lines of you know you know in in this book the girls go after rapists and and murder them and blah, 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 blah. Like some would probably say like, this is a terrible idea to exact, you know, dramatic, violent vengeance and that that's not really the solution. But Capon poses an an interesting counterpoint. Why not? (laughs) And, you know, like it's and I mean, in context, that's not really the full sentence, but I really just love that the the why not of it. But I mean, I, I do think it's a really I think it's a really it's a conversation that's interesting because it's like, in some ways it's like, I mean, we're, we're a couple of years into the very zeitgeistiness of the Me Too movement. And there have been a lot of conversations and obviously we're seeing, you know, some level of justice being served in some cases, but it's just, you know, I I kind of feel like for every case where there is some type of justice, there are a number of others where there isn't. And particularly, I think one really interesting thing about it um, is so much of the Me Too movement has been centered in sort of the the highest echelons with, you know, particularly with like Hollywood stars. And then as well, I sort of feel like there's a bit of a reckoning with like politicians and whatever else. But like, does it really bleed over into the, you know, random 16 year old girl living in suburban Nebraska, you know, like I, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it does like, and it's awesome that, you know, that, that women in, you know, visible, in in visible positions and whatever are like risking, you know, 
so much to to come forward with these stories as well as like a number of women who aren't famous and whatever else like there have been so many cases of people really just taking a stance regardless of the really devastating consequences that it's had for their current lives as well as re-traumatizing themselves and whatever else but like i i still think that you know it's some of the conversations that these higher profile stories have raised to me have then the backlash and the counterpoint that happens in the conversation it's you know it really makes me think that you know there it, it makes me doubt that there has really been significant systemic change yet um that has actually bled over in a meaningful way into day-to-day lives of you know girls and women so yeah and we see so much of and you mentioned the re-traumatizing it's there's this thing going on now I mean I guess it's been going on forever but we're we're expecting women to reveal their personal trauma and like prove that they were assaulted in this like very public performative way Mm -hmm. um I mean we saw that with the Kavanaugh hearings Mm -hmm. where you know and it didn't make any fucking difference you know like we that you know Christine went through all of that and shared all of her pain publicly, um, international television, and then there were no consequences. But we still, it's like we expect women to bear their souls and their trauma and their pain in that way. And it's bullshit. (laughs) Right. It's this wild, wild level of cognitive dissonance where it's like at the time of the Kavanaugh hearings, which I'm sure we'll touch more on later. I could (laughs) talk about that for this full hour, but anyway, to get political. Hello, everyone. But anyway, um, but in, in that context where, you know, everyone was like, well, you know, if this really happened, like, why didn't you say anything then? And blah, 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 blah. And you see that happening with a lot of times when, like, women come forward years after. And obviously, like, disclaimer here, of course, like, I'm completely aware that, like, sexual assault, like, does not only happen to women. It happens to people, obviously, of every gender and mm-hmm. can be committed by people of every gender. But, I mean, I, as a woman, uh, can really only speak to that. And also, like, it is, it's certainly a heavily weighted um, issue in our society, as in, you know, obviously the majority of victims are women and the majority of perpetrators are men. Um, Anyway, but you see so many, you know, survivors coming forward and, you know, people saying, well, if this is really happening, like, why, why didn't you say anything back when it happens, blah, 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 blah. But then at the same time you see what happens afterwards when like justice still is not served and it's like wait a minute like why were we supposed to have done this again and you know it just it's a it's a situation where it it seems like this strange double standard where it's like well if you just say something then you know there will be justice but then if you do there's like not and you know and in a more applied real world situation i mean you know, there are so many situations in which, you know, from from some of which have, you know, garnered attention in the, the media and others of which are just, you know, have remained anonymous, but where, you know, women experiencing assault, particularly if it's in the context of, you know, on a college campus or in a sports team or something like that, like where when they try to report, they will be strongly encouraged not to Mm -hmm. like not even like by well-meaning people like not as in like people that are trying to protect the perpetrators but like they will be told like you know what like you really should not press charges because you're going to be dragged through this you're going to be humiliated they're going to attack your character you're going to be re-traumatized and the there's it's going to be a he said she said and probably nothing's going to happen so like think really hard about whether or not you want to put yourself through all of this and just the fact that that is 
you know, I wouldn't necessarily say the default response, but that is a frequent response and a well-founded response, like from well-meaning people trying to protect people who have gone through unspeakable trauma. Like the fact that this is, you know, well, you know, you can, you can go for it, but like, probably it'll just be really awful and nothing will happen. Like that, that's a problem. So. Yes. And there's this whole narrative and expectation around how a survivor is supposed to act like the right way to be a survivor, which is what I love, especially about your book, because Jade flies in the face of all of that. Like she is a bad bitch at the beginning and a bad bitch at the end. And like it does not, like you said, it doesn't diminish her strength. What happens to her? Mm -hmm. She is the same person and she's going to (laughs) use... all of her resources to fuck these guys up. I, Any means I love necessary. That. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So this month on the podcast, we are talking about the archetype of the mean girl. And I think Jade is like a really interesting example of that because she is sort of, um, I she's mean, a self-identified mean girl. Yeah. She's a self-identified mean girl. She's like proud of it. And she goes to like part of her revenge plot. This isn't really a spoiler since it happened so early on, but she, I mean, nothing is really a spoiler in this book because she's like, this is what I'm going to do. And then she does it. <laughs> then she does it. Like spoilers. She, zero like, suspense. Up boys. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> zero suspense. Just a lot of satisfaction. Like yeah. Deep, deep satisfaction. <laughs> Um, but yeah so she goes to this new school and like makes herself over so it's going by her her middle name is jade um and just like takes over she's like a total queen bee who just like dominates everyone in her path and i i love that so i'm gonna talk a little bit about like her as a mean girl and as like a popular girl yeah i mean first of all so like at risk of blacklisting myself from the author community um I love writing about girls who really know who they are and are confident in that. I think, you know, first of all, any portrayal of any teenage girl in fiction, like I am here for it. And there's nothing that could really be, you know, like wrong because they're obviously every single girl is different. And the whole like not like other girls thing is like completely ridiculous. But I really, you know, I feel like in in YA fiction, you see so many like there, you know, and I think it's it's partly because of you know, the, the audience that tends to read a lot and frankly, what like most writers were when they were kids. But you see a lot of like girls who are introverted and they like to read books and they're kind of, you know, quieter or quirkier or like and, you know, an outsider or whatever else. And I feel like you don't see as many um, stories that sort of center the confident, popular girl who is like, she's hot and she knows it. Like she knows what she wants and she's going to go for it unapologetically. She has sexual agency and she owns that. Like, I feel like you, I mean, you know, like you do see some of it. I'm not in any way trying to say like, wow, look at me. Like I'm so original, but, but I feel like there's less of it. And it's a story that I really like to tell. Also, like, I mean, as a teenager, like I myself was, I was self-assured in who I was. Like I knew what I wanted and I, you know, I carried myself with confidence and I was a little bit of a, you know, I was a little bit of like a popular mean girl. Like I, 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 I like, I'm, I'm, reformed. That, I'm reformed. This is the part where everyone's going to cancel me. Um, I'm reformed and I wasn't like a total bitch. And it was really more like in middle school, like when everyone is at their absolute worst as a human, like oh, by yeah. high school, I was like very self-actualized, obviously. Um, but I very much like, I mean, I wanted to be popular. I cared about being popular and 
like being popular, like as you know, when we talk about dead queens and like be, being popular, like is an actual thing that like takes dedication. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's an actual thing. Like I did a lot of extracurriculars in middle school, but like I, you know, like I, you always feel like you know you're one step away from like if you show up wearing something like awful, or your friend's gonna be like, what is this? You know? Um, and I'm not saying that's a healthy attitude, but like you know, point being like being socially socially successful and navigating the really complicated world of social dynamics in middle or high school is actually a pretty complicated thing. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. And I just, I really like writing about girls who that's kind of the role they play. They care. They, they want to look good. They want to, you know, be popular and be invited to cool parties and like whatever else. And so I have a lot of fun writing that type of character. And, you know, in, in Jade's, in the case of Jade, like she, you know, she says something at the beginning where she's describing, you know, herself and her three best friends, you know, and they call themselves the coven that, you know, everybody thinks, you know, that they're like every high school mean girl thinks that, you know, she and her friends are like the ice queens and like the bitches and like savage and whatever else, but like we're what they wish they were or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they very much like own that identity. There's, there is no, like, there's no you know, aw shucks to any of it. Yeah, there's so often in uh, stories set in high school, those girls are the villain, but then they're mm -hmm. like more interesting than yeah. the hero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel. I mean, I was in high school, I was definitely not popular and didn't really want to be, but I look back on my high school self now and I realized that I actually did have a lot of confidence and assurance in who I was. And mm -hmm. I felt like I had to hide it and be like mm -hmm. I'm just this like marching band dork don't look yeah. at me and now I'm just I want to like go back and slap myself in the face because I feel like then I had to spend all of my 20s trying to regain this confidence and I still feel like I'm doing that in some ways and back then it was innate but I was told by like everyone around me in society sort of implicitly that I needed to hide it and yeah, yeah there's so bullshit. much <laughs> weird romanticization of girls who don't know they're beautiful and who like Ugh are ashamed, like are, are like humble and like, you know, like not wanting to like, I mean, like, remember that song, um, the One Direction, You Don't Know Your Beautiful <laughs> you know song. Your beautiful. Like, I'm sorry to everyone <laughs> listening for all the like extreme, like earworm that I've inflicted on them. But like, holy cow, the summer of 2012, when that song would not stop playing, I was just like, this is such a stupid song. Like it, and I mean, no, if I, I actually, I love One Direction, like shout out to all you guys, you're great. But um, I just, the song itself and so many other songs like it that are just like, they really romanticize this idea of this like, you know, girl who just like is incredibly self-conscious. And again, like if you are self-conscious, like there is nothing wrong with that. It is hard to like, find a sense of who you are as a teenage girl like it just is but like the idea of like that somehow it's glamorized and that like if you know you're beautiful then like there's you know and if you like have a sense of confidence you're like like hell yeah I'm I am gorgeous and I am confident and I know what I want and like I am all that then it's like it somehow is you know you get ridiculed for that and I mean really like teenage girls get ridiculed for practically everything um yes. but you know, I just, I really just like it when, and I mean, like, it's, it's so true. Like what you're saying about feeling like you need to hide your confidence and whatever else, because there really is just like, you're too forward or you're like, you know, a slut or you're, you know, cocky or like not feminine or like whatever else. There are just so many different things that get, um, 
that get tossed to girls as a label if they you know show any sense of like yeah i know what i want especially if it's not like within very specific realms Mm-hmm. So, let's talk a little bit about your first book, uh, yeah. Dead Queens Club, because you do such interesting things with sort of mean girl stereotypes. In that, like, there are not uh, there are like a lot of different girls in this book. Obviously, since it's based on Henry VIII, and that motherfucker had a lot of wives. Um, <laughs> and I think one of my favorite characters, besides Cleves, the main character who's hilarious and awesome, is um, Katie, who yes. is like the pretty popular girl and kind of gets slut shamed at various points and Cleves really like steps in and stands up for her and mm-hmm. you have a lot of empathy for this sort of character who is often the villain or mm-hmm. like kind of written off in stories like this. Yeah. Um so yes, like so Dead Queens is very much like an ensemble cast type of book. I mean, in addition to, you know, the you I mean obviously we have Henry and we whatever, but there are the six <laughs> wives all of whom play some type of role in the story. Um, And of course, it's not a spoiler alert to say that some of them are dead. Um, But then we also have, you know, a very close friend of them. So there are like, there are like seven, I would say, like very major female characters in this book. And they're all very different from one another. Um, And like really each of them would kind of be stereotyped or more flatteringly archetyped in a a certain way. And I very much based it on the historical characters that, that they were, you know, based on. But yes, um, Katie Howard, she's my favorite. I really wrote the book for her. So Katie Howard, for those less versed in Tudor history, um, is based on Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of Henry VIII, um, whose story is really, really tragic. Um, And she really is why I became interested in Tudor history in the first place. When I was like, I don't know, maybe 11 or something like that, I read, I don't know. Did you ever read the like Dear America books? Mm -hmm. So they were these like really, they were these beautifully, beautifully constructed books that were all these, you know, like fake diaries of like, you know, girls at at different points in American history. And at one point they like branched out and did like a, you know, a spinoff series that was called the Royal Diaries. And so they were like the, the fake teenage diaries of various like famous queens from around the world in history. And there was one that was Elizabeth the first. And so, and it was told at the time when, um, Henry VIII was married to his sixth wife, Catherine Parr. And um, so, you know, shortly after the death of Catherine Howard and Catherine Howard, like did not play a significant role in the story, but like, um, quote unquote, Elizabeth um, mentioned her a few times and about how it was like so tragic. And so like she had been like executed so young and whatever else. And I was like, I'm really fascinated by this character. Like, who was she? And I started reading more about her and just, I really connected with her and like, which is interesting because really she is like not talked. I mean, like the famous one is Anne Boleyn. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. after that, probably Catherine of Aragon, but like they're just, people don't talk about Catherine Howard that much. And historically she, you know, I mean, at the time, she obviously, you know, they, Henry VIII did as much as he could to completely like erase her from the record, like, like destroyed, you know, every, I mean, like to the point where they literally like dumped lime on her grave to disintegrate her bones faster and whatever else. Ugh, like really, he just wanted dick. to eliminate her completely from history. And he changed laws in order to have her be executed. Literally everybody, in, including like Cranmer, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury was like, dude, like you don't, he definitely said that, <laughs> dude, you don't need to um, execute her, like literally just 
just send her off to a nunnery, like whatever, we'll annul the marriage, like you're good, whatever, because she was, you know, on suspicion of um, adultery. But Henry VIII, they literally um, changed a law in order to be able to execute her. So like ex post facto, obviously totally illegal today, but like, because he personally was so offended by the fact that she made him potentially look, you know, not like a big baller or whatever. Um, <laughs> so again, I'm using a lot of historically accurate Tudor terminology. But so he completely, you know, destroyed her reputation. But the thing that's fascinating to me is that basically all the other wives have had their reputations rehabilitated, um, especially in, you know, shows and, and books and whatever. Because, I mean, the Tudor era is very much living on in the imagination and has through every era because it's, there's just so much drama and everybody's been fascinated with it. But, you know, Anne Boleyn has been really rehabilitated in a fascinating way where she gets all these things attributed to her that really don't make sense in historical context. And, you know, at this point, you know, people respect that Catherine of Aragon. Aragon was like super badass. She was the first female mm -hmm. ambassador in history and she like won a battle in her own right as you know regent and like just like all the rest of them really people are like i mean even with like the lesser known ones like you know with with anne of cleves and jane seymour people are like okay like you know we kind of see this but even today like there are respected historical biographies of the six queens that literally describe Catherine Howard as, quote, a wanton floozy. Oh and I am oh, straight up quoting, straight up quoting. And like, it's, and it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, we are literally, so basically, Catherine Howard, at the time of her death was like 19-ish. We don't know exactly when she was born, but she was a teenager. And she had been basically, you know, thrust under Henry VIII's eye when he was married already to Anne of Cleves by her uncle. And her uncle was also... Anne Boleyn's uncle. So like, bro, you already had like one niece be executed by this king. And now you're like, let's try again. <laughs> and so she gets thrown into this situation um, that she very much had not been prepared for. She was not raised for a life in the court. And, you know, just she already had, she'd had, you know, previous sexual relationships, which was completely normal for a woman of her standing at the time, because she was not in the running for the queen. And they didn't really have the prudish attitudes about sex at that point in time that kind of developed later on with Puritans and Victorians. Um, so it was totally normal. But the thing was, if you were queen, then you couldn't have had any past sexual relationships because any sort of doubt on like the validity of an heir, like that it was actually the, the king's son or daughter like that would be you know that would lead to some more potential you know wars of the roses nonsense nobody wanted that so basically she was already really like just damned from the start because she had these previous relationships but yet her uncle so eager to play his political cards kind of put her into the spotlight so of course when these things came out you know but the fact that she has not been rehabilitated in her reputation today to me is like really, it's pretty tragic um, from a feminist point of view because it's like, yeah, at the time, like everybody was pretty problematic in 1542. But like the fact that we still have, you know, that when you say something about like, oh, blah, 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 Catherine Howard to somebody who like is a vague fan of like tutors and pop culture, they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, like, but she was the one who was guilty, right? And she was like, Ugh. kind of deserved to die. She was like, kind of a bimbo. Like, I've literally had all of these things said to me when I said something about Catherine Howard. And it's like, is it the world's biggest problem to be go around like defending a woman who died like 500 years ago? I mean, no, but also it reflects a larger issue that we still 
are slut shaming a dead teenager. Like what? <laughs> so I wrote this book to give Catherine Howard her due. And I just, I love her so, so much. And she was by all accounts, just a really like vivacious, kind, fun person and just was a delight to everybody that knew her. I mean, she was like giving people dogs as a gift, like all the time, like for no reason and just like getting everybody dancing. I mean, she was very much the like life of the party, just a really fun, sweet, earnest person. And like, it's just a real shame that we kind of just see her as like, oh, this like dumb slut who kind of deserved to die. Um, so I was trying to sort of capture her in a, you know, 21st century archetype and show the way that, you know, somebody in that type of position would still be able to be framed in that same way. And then, you know, kind of argue back through the narrative that like, you know, sort sort of show that like this girl that whether in history as Catherine Howard or today in your high school, it's like, oh, well, that's like the kind of like the like slutty girl who like always ends up with these like terrible boys and like whatever. And she should know better and like kind of giving her humanity and giving her a voice to, you know, so people could see the complexity of a girl who doesn't always make the best decisions, but is a really good person and like does not deserve to be like shamed or judged for those decisions she makes. Yeah, I loved, so. um, I saw the musical Six. Okay, I yes, I still familiar. haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? No, oh, so like everybody tells me I need to, but I just haven't yet. Her song yeah. in that is, it starts out as this cute little like Ariana Grande kind of pop song and uh -huh. then it turns into just like a total emotional gut punch. Like it wow. made me cry a little bit. It's really, really good. So that musical absolutely gives her her due, I think. Good. Um, yeah. I've had other people mention that to me. I really, really need to see it. So You do. It's so fun. Um, all right. Well, we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you do you have any other favorite mean girl characters you'd like to shout out uh yes huge shout out to my girl Catherine Mertoy from Cool Intentions yes um, <laughs> absolutely the queen of the world I love her so much I've seen that movie so many times it's ridiculous um I love and, and Cool Intentions is like most of those like you know classic like 90s and early 2000s teen films it's like super 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 problematic but if you can like remove that and look at Catherine Mertoya's character kind of in the vacuum like she gives us I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about but there's this speech that she gives at one point in the movie where she's like you know she's basically talking about sexual agency and how like boys are applauded for their conquests and like girls are seen as sluts and like whatever else and she's basically like I do what I want and like fuck everybody like blah 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 like she she just that speech is incredible and she herself she's just she's an unapologetic like powerful bitch and like i just i love her scheming i love her like ruthlessness i love that she doesn't apologize like she doesn't go soft at the end like sebastian she just like she completely stands by who she is and you know i i very much see jade from Fowler's fair as being you know a very you know she's she's a little bit inspired by Catherine Mertoy, I will say and she is it's definitely that that type of like basically like when when my um when the audio team was getting in touch with me about the, their you know audio recording of Fallow's Fair you know they had you know sent me some samples and I was like yeah you know this is really good but like I really I just don't want her to seem so like emotional I want her to be like just like cold like mm -hmm. cold but also like very like fiery at the same time and i was like really just like imagine Catherine mortoy from cool intentions and that was like all i needed to say to them they were like oh okay we got it so yeah nice. love her 
yeah, I love her. She's a great character. And you're making me want to just like blow off work for the rest of the day and watch that movie. And watch Cruel Intentions, yes. Time. Yeah. Yes. It's been a while. Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your next book is going to be or is it top secret? Um, I'm going to go ahead and tell because I like to yeah. live on the edge. Um, <laughs> so turn off this recording right now if you're listening, Sarah Burns, Sarah Goodman, Naomi Colthurst, or anybody else. Okay. So... Um, I just submitted a new revision of it to my agent. My editors haven't seen it yet, so I can't talk super specifically about it, but um, I'm really excited about this book and I really hope that my editors are too. Um, Fallows Fair was a two book deal, so hopefully this will end up being book two. And I think it kind of follows along with it. It has some similar themes of, I mean, like all of my books, you know, as you know, and whatever are, are very much about like, like female solidarity and about like, like girls supporting girls. And so this book definitely continues that. It is again about a group of girls um, who basically are fighting back against the people and institutions that would prefer that they shut up. And there is revenge, there is murder, um, but it's it takes place at a sailing camp. And you know, there's murder on a boat, which anyone who's read Palace <laughs> Fair can say is a Hannah Capen classic. So, you know, I'm really, really excited. It's very atmospheric. It's very Lana Del Rey. Um, Ooh, love it. Yeah. So hopefully, I'm not going to say the title because, you know, but hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, that will be book three. Well, I am very ready to read that and blurb it. And I was going to say, I noticed I was looking at the blurbs for Fallows Fair and uh-huh. my blurb and like five of the other ones all use the word vicious. So. <laughs> accurate we're like it's vicious yeah they're all it's all vicious and bloody and whatever else which i will say my uk team had a really great time playing with all the instances of the word bloody so oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, something a little different over there yes yes awesome. but also right, well, can you tell the listeners where they can find you on the internet yes um i am i'm not sure if i can tell my handle is completely <laughs> unpronounceable um but it's yeah, at what the fuck does that mean anyway t-l-d-a-a-o-l-l-f and yes i need to share that i know we're over time but everyone is always like what on earth is your handle it's the same on instagram and twitter um but it actually when i was in middle school i went through a really intense edgar Allan poe reading stage because <laughs> i never met another like i met i never encountered another writer that was able to basically tone and voice like that was my first introduction to really using tone and voice and i mean poe is freaking amazing so also i'm from virginia and we have a lot of ownership of poe here but um anyway so i was trying to learn how to write in that style so i wrote several short stories that were in in the, you know, the gothic horror style and the first one that i wrote was called the life death and afterlife of lamaya lucy fireash and it was about this haunted painting and this like woman who like died in a fire because everybody thought she was a witch so they burned at her boarding house so then she like haunts this painting and like i don't know there's the plot leaves a little bit to be desired but she was awesome you would love her um and so at some point when i made my instagram i was like what should my handle be i know it should be an acronym for that story and so that's what it is there we go (laughs) i've always wondered so i'm glad yeah that's what it is it's it's yeah (laughs) I'm just amazed that no one's made me change it. That the fact, like flipping open like the the cover of Fallows Fair and seeing on like the back on the author thing where it's like follow the author's socials and it just has that. I'm like my middle school self is like so extremely validated right now by this. So. It just makes you seem more like an international woman of mystery. In my <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
But you also have a website, which is just Hannah Capen. I do. My website is hannahcapen.com. Yes, that's a little bit easier. I I resisted the urge to secure the Tilda Alf domain. You better get it. Somebody else might. I should, yeah, especially after this podcast when Quentin Tarantino buys it. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. And everyone, um, go buy Foul is Fair. By the time this podcast airs, it'll already be out. So you have no excuses. Go buy it right now. Yay. Thank you so much, Lane. I have been wanting to be on this podcast ever since you guys started it. And I'm super pumped to be here. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe. And you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com. And we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>